0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former passions or ignorance. But as, you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. You may be seated. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I know Rick already gave me a brief introduction, but for those of you who I don't look too familiar to, uh, my wife, Yuri, and I were... Members here for about four years. Um, We had the blessing of being able to learn from many of you and serve alongside a lot of you. About a year and a half ago, we moved just over the Blue Ridge into the Shenandoah Valley um, so I could take a job that allowed me to work less while I pursue my seminary education. So Mercy is still very much our church home, and this church has been very faithful in supporting me both through prayer and then also supporting my seminary education. And I just want to share how grateful I am for that. Some of you who know me may know that originally I'm from actually the mountains of western North Carolina and southwest Virginia. Um, as many young men who grew up in those areas, I spent a lot of time as a young man hunting, you know, strolling through fields and forests with a shotgun in hand, looking for small game and maybe the occasional deer if I was lucky enough. Well, there's a story that I always heard growing up about one such young man who, as he was coming of age, he decided that he was ready to move on from hunting small game and deer, and he was going to take his first bear. Now, the young man, you know, he did the necessary work to prepare. He spoke to older hunters. He looked at maps, and, and he read up on everything and got his gear together. And as the hunting season approached, he, uh, he felt pretty, pretty good about it. So he set out deep into the mountains to look for his first bear. And after some time, with some work, he was successful he managed to kill his first bear. And then the reality started to set in. He now had to drag this bear several miles back out to where his truck was. And so the young man, he was still high in spirits from his success, and he began to drag the bear, but with each, each step, each mile, the bear got a little heavier and a little heavier. Well, finally, he was within sight of his truck, and he just had to pull the bear a couple hundred more feet up the incline to the road. And it was at this point that his strength began to give out. So the young man tugged and pulled and fought as he would, but was unsuccessful. He could not bear bear to move the bear another inch. It was about this time that he looked up and saw two old-timers standing along the road watching him. Now, if you grew up in the country, you may know old-timers have a tendency to show up when you're in the middle of an embarrassing moment. So, you know, in frustration, he sighed, he huffed, and he just shrugged his shoulders at them. About that time, one of the old timers smiled a little bit and said, well, son, it looks like you were loaded for bear, but you couldn't bear the load. It's a silly story. But I wonder if for many of us, this young man's struggle doesn't reflect our own view of holiness. It's so often as believers, we set out to conquer our sin that we struggle with. We gather information. Maybe we talk to other people. And with some hesitation, we set out to hunt the bear that has been haunting us. We take aim at our sin, and maybe occasionally we even get off a clear shot, only to our dismay to realize that once again, we cannot bear the load. For many of us, it's easy to believe on paper that we've been made right by the work of Christ. But in our daily reality, we're still afraid that we aren't enough, that we don't measure up, that God could never really love us because of our sin. And because of this, a call to holiness, a command to be holy, can most often feel like more weight being added to our already guilty consciences. It can feel like, at best, we've squeaked by and maybe we're tolerated by the Father because of what Christ has done. And so being reminded of our need for holiness simply seems like more weight. It simply seems like a reminder of our inadequacies and failures. So it might seem strange that in this passage, the Apostle Peter is using a call to holiness to encourage believers who are going through tremendous suffering and persecution. How can holiness be something that encourages anyone, much less less those who are suffering? Well, there are three primary ways in this passage that Peter is seeking to encourage the church. Through holiness as a covenant identity, through holiness as a command, and through holiness as an eternal hope. So let's start with the first one. The Apostle Peter is seeking to encourage these believers through the idea of holiness as a covenant identity. Who are these believers that he's speaking to? Well, it's a mixture of Jewish and Gentile Christians who were spread throughout the Roman Empire, and that they were facing pretty extreme persecution. They were facing loss of their livelihoods and possibly even death. And Peter himself was writing from the city of Rome, likely during the reign of the emperor Nero, who was known as the really the greatest persecutor of the early church. So, what is it that Peter is trying to communicate to to these believers in the midst of a terrible time? He's seeking to assure them that their identity and purpose as believers is secure and what it is in the midst of suffering. In verses 15 and 16, his call to be holy. Be holy as I am holy is a quote from Leviticus 11, which we read a few minutes ago. This passage and all of the others in Leviticus are not merely meant to be a laundry list of things God has a distaste for. Instead, the entire focus of the book of Leviticus is to tell us that God had set his affections on a particular people, that he had called them out of slavery and bondage simply because of his goodwill and the, the covenants that he had made with their forefathers. And not only had he brought them out of slavery, but by giving them his laws, he was setting them apart as a particular people, his own people. Setting them apart from the rest of the world because the rest of the world was utterly separate from God. See, holiness is most primarily a relational issue. God is holy and he is perfect and set apart from all that is not. And because of the curse of sin, All of us are separated from God and his eternal love. He didn't make it this way, but through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, all of creation was brought under the curse of sin. A curse that meant all things would be subject to death, decay, and the power of sin. A curse that made impossible the primary thing that we were made for, a relationship with God. And because of this, we are slaves to our sin. It rules over us as a master, to whom our wills are in bondage." So how, then, is there hope of reconciliation to God? Is it through keeping the laws as they're listed in Leviticus? Fortunately, this is not what is being taught in Leviticus, nor is it what Peter is getting at. The answer lies in verses 18 and 19 of the first chapter of 1 Peter and in chapter 16 of Leviticus. In chapter 16, we get a detailed account of the sacrificial system that the Israelites used to be ceremonially clean so that they could dwell in God's presence. But this system was simply a foreshadowing of the payment of blood that would be necessary to pay for the price of sin and truly reconcile us to God. Because ultimately none of us will ever be able to achieve holiness by our moral efforts. No, it's only through the shedding of blood that we can make payment for our sins and that we can may, be made holy and reconciled to God. The system of sacrifices in the Old Testament was simply a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ that Peter mentions in verses 18 and 19, when he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Through his death on the cross, Christ shed blood, paid for the price of sin for all of his people. As believers, you and I have had our sins paid for, and we have been reconciled to, God through the blood of, reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. This call to holiness, then, is not based on our moral efforts. It's based on the fact that the shed blood of Christ has made us holy, reconciling us to God by covering our wickedness with payment of his precious blood. So what is it, then, that Peter is saying about the identity of these believers? Believers who have lost national identity, wealth, and safety. He's reminding them that their true identity is as the holy covenant people of God who have been set apart from the power of corruption, of sin, and darkness. The great hope that Peter is giving these individuals then is that even though the world is crumbling around them, they can have ultimate hope as the secure people of God. That the top problem that was facing them and really the top problem that is facing all all of us is that we were made for relationship with God, and yet because of sin, there's no way of achieving it on our own. But this problem has been addressed in the blood of Christ, and all other worldly issues, all suffering and persecution pale in comparison. Just as God delivered the people of Israel from physical bondage, the believer has been delivered from bondage to sin and death. Just as God has made the Israelites into a unique people whose identity was based on their reconciled relationship to him, so as the church have we been reconciled to God and are being set apart as a unique and holy people for the sake of his glory. And just as God dwelt with them in their exile in the desert while they waited to enter the promised land, so God dwells with us as his covenant people, as the church, as we wait to enter the promise of our eternal glory. Through the blood of Christ, you have been unified with Christ. And through this union with him, you have been given a new identity. You may struggle with your sin, but you're not a sinner in the same sense that you were before. Now, there's something my dad would always say to me growing up. You know, we grew up in old-timey Baptist churches, and it was not at all uncommon to hear someone say or refer to themselves as just a dirty, rotten sinner. And they meant well by what they were saying, but it would eat my father up. And so I cannot count the times he would say to me, as a Christian, you're not a sinner. You're a saint with a sin problem. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of a world that has gone crazy over identity, you need to know that your identity is not as a sinner, but as someone who has been bought by the blood of Christ, and that in the blood of Christ, you have been given an identity of holiness that is yours as a child of God. This is important because though you struggle with sin, you cannot identify with your sin. This identity is important. You, An identity with sin is in complete contrast, in complete war against your identity in Christ. You've been made right with God through the blood of Christ, and you belong to him. But the evil desires that you struggle with, the flesh that fights against you, should not define who you are. To define yourself by these desires would be to deny the power of the blood of Christ, the power that it has to save you, and the power that it has to sanctify you. You see, Christ's blood has made you righteous before God by covering your sin. But it's also at work in you, sanctifying you and making you less and less sinful. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can boldly move forward in the fight against our sin looking to the grace that he has shown us and making us holy to press forward. Holiness then as a covenant identity is an excellent source of hope because it means that the blood of Christ has dealt with our primary problem and that our reconciled relationship to God has been secured. It means that despite the loss of identity we suffer as the world rejects us, we have ultimate identity as the blood brought children of God. So let's move on to our second, our second point here. Holiness as a command, and this is what might make us all nervous, so here we go. If Christ has secured our identity as the holy set-apart people of God, what is our responsibility then as believers regarding our holiness? Well Peter calls us to be sober, sober not being conformed to our former passions. Because once brought into the covenant family of God by the blood of Christ, believers must obediently put away their sinful practices, setting ourselves apart from the sin of the world. Holiness, then, is not a requirement for entry into the family of God, but it is an inevitable and necessary outcome. But this shouldn't be burdensome, because ultimately our holiness is a work of Christ in us. It's something that he has promised to do for us. What does that mean though? What does it mean to be setting ourselves apart from the world through our obedience to the truth? Well, before we say what it means, I think we should take a minute to say what it doesn't mean. You see, there's a standard line of thinking that often comes out in evangelical culture. That if we simply do the right things, work hard enough maybe in our daily quiet times, and maybe quit listening to secular music or watching too much TV, we can become like the white-haired, sinless saints who fill the pews of the church we grew up in. That if we just get ourselves together, if we're doing the right things, that eventually, as Christians, some point, at some point, these sinful desires will leave us. They'll go away. But there's a problem with this because Scripture doesn't teach that. It nowhere teaches us that we'll become sinless on this side of heaven. It nowhere teaches us that we'll reach perfection. In fact, it teaches quite the opposite. Scripture is clear that while on earth, while we wander the desert in our time of exile, we will continue to struggle with our sin. So why is it so important that we make this distinction? Well, I think it's important because viewing holiness typically defaults towards two sort of forms, and which way we go may very much depend on our dispositions. I think the first question we ask is, are we older brothers or younger brothers? I'm going to assume that most of us here have some familiarity with the the, um, parable of the prodigal son. But in general the idea that I want to draw out is that the majority of us line up with either the older brother in the story, who is prone to legalism and self-righteousness, or to the younger brother, who is prone to struggling with more external sin and apparent forms of unrighteousness. So let's examine how this idea of perfectionism plays out with both of these. For the younger brothers and sisters here today, whether you were raised in the church or if you came into it later in life, you probably have a default towards feeling like an imposter. What I mean by that is despite your faith in the work of Christ, you have a hard time believing that you could ever be like the rest of the people in this room. You know, the ones who get it. Maybe you've gotten used to the church culture. And maybe the messages of repeated messages of grace and mercy have helped you but you feel that ultimately you don't belong because you know how close your sin sits. You know that it's crouching at the door. You know that the website is just a click away, that the bottle is only a short drive. You know that the anger that you struggle with is just below the surface, waiting to break loose and you're terrified of it. You're terrified it'll bring the all too familiar shame with it and as you look around you, believing that there are people here who don't struggle with sin, not like you do, you fall into despair and the belief that you can never really change. Well, what about the older brother then? In many ways, the lie of perfectionism is much more deadly for the older brother. And in our context, it's more prevalent. So we'll sit on this one a little bit longer. We're meeting here in Lynchburg today. Forest, but you know. So there's a good chance that if you're here this morning, you grew up in church, you may even consider yourself a covenant child. And I know for a fact that many of you here memorized the catechism growing up. So even if you didn't grow up in the PCA, if you're here, there's a good chance you have a connection to liberty, or that you grew up in a profoundly evangelical home. Maybe you went to a private Christian school, or maybe if you were a really good Christian, you were homeschooled. Now, these aren't bad things in and of themselves. In fact, they're beautiful things. I was homeschooled. But there is a danger to them because of the reality that all of us are broken by the power of sin. You see, older brothers are always at the risk of thinking they've arrived, of believing that they get it. They don't struggle with the gross sins of the younger brother. And sure, they believe, you know, they need the work of Christ to be saved. Maybe just not as much as the other guy as those people. So this is terribly destructive on the individual level, but it's catastrophic on the cultural level. So often, our churches can buy into this lie, elevating individuals because of their prowess, such as preaching or intelligence, almost deifying them, wanting to believe that our particular church or tradition could produce such a saint. We've seen it again and again. And much of what underlies this misconception is that at some point we believe that we really can arrive at perfect holiness this side of heaven. But we need to put this myth to death. Maybe by so doing, evangelical culture will produce one less Christian celebrity who is revealed to have serious hidden sin. Or, possibly there will be one less podcast about the scandals of an evangelical university. Or maybe, just maybe, another major Christian denomination won't be terribly plagued with systemic sexual abuse. Now even though the approach to holiness manifests differently in the younger and older brother, it ultimately has the same source underlying it. You see, we're all actually afraid of the same thing. We know that we're made for relationship with God and we believe as Christians that he has called us to be his holy people, but we struggle to believe that he can actually change us. We still struggle to believe that the precious blood of Christ can actually go that far. But you say, Sam, didn't you just say that the older brother think that they have made it? That they have reached perfection? That is the deceiving power of sin. In reality, the older brother is just as scared of their sinfulness as the younger brother. But because of their tend- tendency towards pride, Because of their inability to see their failings and to open up about them, they bury their sins beneath layers and layers and layers of self-righteousness until one day they either choke to death on their own self-righteousness or the sin that they pretended didn't exist bursts like an atomic bomb, leaving the wreckage of broken families and relationships in its wake. The underlying struggle for both the older and younger brother then is that they have no hope Both, but brothers and sisters, we must have hope that the precious blood of Christ will make us holy. So what does that look like? I know that here at Mercy, you recently finished your catechism club. And um, one of my favorite sections of the catechism is where it speaks about the Ten Commandments. Because after giving this incredibly descriptive um, section on what it looks like to obey or disobey God's commands, the catechism very plainly and graciously says, none of you can do it. Which is great, that's what we need to hear. You can't even do it for a day. So what does that mean about our holiness? It means that when we truly look into the holiness of God, we realize that on this side of heaven, we are hopeless in trying to achieve a holiness that compares to his. But this knowledge should begin to free us because we can acknowledge our fear and we can recognize that our holy, holiness does not depend on us, but it depends on God. God has rescued you. He has set you apart as, as his people. And now he is making you holy. Ultimately, it is his work. He is the one who through grace brought you out of bondage to sin and death. And he is the one through, whom the, work, through the work of the Holy Spirit who is continually putting to death the work of sin in your life. As believers, we're promised in Philippians 1-6 that the one who began the good work in us will bring it to completion. So before we can actually start doing the practical work of holiness, we have to make sure that we're assured of two things. First, that we can never achieve holiness on our own and that because of that we need to live humble, open lives, acknowledging and confessing our sin. And the second thing is that we must cultivate a greater hope, a greater faith in the blood of Christ. Christ has promised to make you holy. And though you fumble through this process, he will hold you fast amidst your unfaithfulness. The grace that you received in the Lord Jesus Christ is enough to keep you in the midst of your struggles with sin. And it's only with this foundation that we can actually begin pursuing holiness. Now we just spent a lot of time deconstructing a wrong view of holiness, but now I want to take just a minute to talk about what it looks like for a believer to pursue holiness. In this passage, Peter gives us a glimpse of what it looks like for a believer to pursue holiness. Again, he's using this to encourage them in the midst of suffering by reminding them of the hope we just mentioned. Because we have sure faith of what, that Christ will keep us, we can begin this difficult process of putting our sins to death. We can boldly and openly address our sin, not hiding it. We're operating in the security of Christ's love for us. Peter tells us that we're called to be sober-minded, not living according to former passions, not according to the sinful nature that we were born into, but according to this new identity that we have been given as the people of God. In verse 22, he says, having purified your souls through your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, the word purified in verse 22 might seem confusing at first glance, but what it means is that you're setting yourself apart for holy use. It's the same idea that in Leviticus 11, they consecrated themselves. What Peter is saying is that because you have been born again, because you have been washed in the blood and made holy through Christ, purify your souls by setting yourselves apart from the sin of the world, by obeying God's commands. This is a daily and strenuous process. And invariably, we find that our sin clings to us. We find that the ways of the world and the patterns of sin and death still so easily infiltrate our desires. But just as God is holy, because we are his people, we are called to be set apart. And because of this, because of our hope in the promises of Christ that he will change us, we must be about the business of killing our sin. Don't be discouraged by your sin. Glory in the fact that Christ has set you free from your bondage to it, that he is sanctifying you daily, and that someday you will be completely free from this in eternity. Our hope, then, is not that through seeking holiness we'll become perfect this side of heaven. Our hope is that in the fact that through seeking holiness we are given a beautiful foretaste of our eternal hope. And this leads us to our last point, which is holiness as a future hope. Throughout this passage, Peter has been building the contrast between the temporary and the eternal. And that is the true source of hope he's drawing on in this passage. Because just as the Israelites were being set apart as a unique people by God to be brought into the promised land, we're being set apart for our eternal hope. In verse 13 and 22 and 25 through 25, Peter encourages these believers that their call to holiness is ultimately a call to their eternal hope. As the people of God, purchased with the blood of Christ, they have been given an eternal hope of a restored relationship with the triune God. Holiness now is a foretaste of that relationship. Even now, Christ has enabled us as believers to live lives more and more free of the power of sin and darkness. A freedom that will ultimately be recognized and completed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is contrasting this eternal hope with the temporary nature of the suffering that the church is undergoing. The suffering and the nature of the world passing away around them and us. As believers, we have already been set apart from the world by God, and we are setting ourselves apart from sin through our obedience to the truth. Why must we persist despite persecution, despite struggles and our own inadequacies and failures? We persist because we have been born again of an imperishable seed. And even our suffering, persecution, and struggles with sin remind us that this world and the things of this world are passing away and that they are not our calling. Our calling is to have an eternal and holy and restored relationship with God. I hope that you grasp how much hope there is in this. These believers were losing everything, but their hope in their future restored state was enough for them to persist in the face of tremendous suffering. Looking at who we are as a church, I think that sometimes there's a danger that we lose sight that our future state will be so much more glorious than our present state. We're an upper, upper class upper middle class church and wealth is not a bad thing, but do not cling too tightly to your gold because it is not what purchases your eternal hope and moth and rust will corrupt it. To risk sounding corny, After 2,000 years, the blood of Christ has yet to lose any value to inflation. But it's not just money. We must not be afraid to lose anything because our ultimate hope is always in the eternal. Our families, careers, and hobbies are all temporary gifts that will pass away. But your holiness is an eternal hope that will not fade. In some of his various works, C.S. Lewis lays out his perspective of hell, one of his perspectives of hell, Through the idea that we're either becoming more hellish or heavenly creatures. That as we go through life, if as a believer, we're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, we're slowly becoming more and more like Christ. Until someday we'll be holy creatures who dwell in eternal bliss with our Lord. The opposite is true for those without Christ. That the sin that rules us will eventually make us into unrecognizable, almost demonic creatures eternally tormented by our own selfishness and sin. And there's some truth to this line of thinking because our great eternal hope is that even now, despite our brokenness, despite the brokenness around us, Christ is making us into holy beings who will someday be perfectly holy. Don't you long for that? Do you not realize that there's not a single person here, including you and me, who has not been devastated by the power of sin? Do you long for a time where you don't struggle with sin? Where you're no longer surrounded by broken relationships and marriages, maybe your own? A time where your children don't fall into the destructive power of sin? A time when you can actually love people like you want to love them, when your own sin and selfishness doesn't get in the way? Church, someday this will be made reality because all things will be reconciled to the Father through the blood of Christ. Someday, you will be forever free of sin, and your holiness now is a beautiful and gracious foretaste of that future reality. Cling to it. Remind yourself of it daily. Long for it. Remind yourself that all things are passing away. Remind yourself that your hope is not in your security here on earth, but in the precious blood of Christ, which has ransomed you from sin and death. Christ has saved you through grace and given you a new identity. Christ is working that grace in you now, sanctifying and making you holy. And someday that grace will be fully recognized when we're reunited with Christ in heaven. And because of this, with confidence, we should be able to say the words from the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which reads as follows. Believer, what is your only hope in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own but that I belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Church, we belong to the Lord, and he has called us to be holy as he is holy. So let holiness become a precious gift to you, reminding you of the grace that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table to receive communion. And communion is more than just a simple reminder of Christ's death. It is that, but it's more than that. Communion is a means of grace by which the Lord reminds us of what has been done for us and what our future hope is. We have been made holy through the shedding of Christ's blood. In the time of our exile, we're sustained by spiritually feeding on the bread of life, receiving grace that is a foretaste of what will one day be our perfect communion with God. The grace we receive assists us in our pursuit of holiness, reminding us that we do not pursue holiness alone, but through the strength of our communion with the triune God. So if you have placed your faith in the blood of Christ, this table is yours. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See that the weight, that the bare-sized weight of holiness is a light burden and an easy yoke. Please pray with me. God of grace, we come to you this Pentecost Sunday thanking you that you have set us apart through the blood of Christ that you've made us righteous. And that through the work of your Holy Spirit, which you've given us, we can be killing our sin. We can find freedom. That freedom will never be perfect until we're with you one day again. And so, Lord, in the time now as we wander, waiting to enter the promised land, help us to live humble lives, confessing our sin, being honest and open about our need for you, for your grace, and for the work of Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.